Welcome to the Azure for Sports podcast, hosted by the Azure for Sports team at Microsoft. Hello, and welcome to a new edition of the Azure for Sports podcast. I'm Suzanne Tedrick, and as always, I'm joined by my partner in all things Azure, Mr. John Flynn. John, what's going on, man? Oh, everything. Hey, Suzanne, how are you? It's good to see you again. Um, I know I say this every time, but I'm really pumped for this episode, right? But this one is true. We we have a repeat guest, someone that was near and dear to our hearts. We work with them closely every single day. He's an award-winning cloud solution architect for Microsoft and, don't forget, an author. So yeah. welcome, everybody, to Jake Switzer. Hey, everybody. Hey, John. Hey, Suzanne. Thanks for having me on again. It's it's great being a repeat guest. Uh, always fun jumping on with y'all and, and talking about all things Azure and all things sports. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming in. So the reason why we asked you to come on is that we get the privilege of working with sports clients on a daily basis, right? From leagues to individual clubs and teams. And the thing that we hear the most is how do I build an analytics architecture using Azure, right? And um, so we do a lot of work with that. Suzanne and Jake, you've got the battle scars and, and still uh, continue to get them to, to make this happen. But then obviously the next thing that we hear is how do we make that easier? Right. For people who have maybe they haven't been on Azure before, maybe they're coming from on-prem or a different cloud provider, or maybe they just don't have a lot of time or a lot of resources to be able to do this. How do we create the architecture needed to build these wonderful analytical tools on Azure quicker? Right. So Jake and his wonderful team have come together and done just that. Right. So they've built this framework, um, an easy button, if you would, for um, building an analytics architecture on Azure. Um, we like uh, alliteration. Um, but one of the cool things here is that we're going to do something, Suzanne, we've never done before as we continue to just break the production qualities here and go for the stars, is we're going to do a live demo, right? So we're very excited. All of those who are listening on Spotify or Amazon or Apple Music, you go look at go look at us on YouTube. I mean, Jake sounds amazing, but he looks even better when he's sharing the screen and he's actually doing this in real time. So we're not gonna we're not gonna hold thumbs or cross fingers because Jake is that good, but we're gonna do a live demo of a one-click deployment of an analytics architecture to Azure. Right? There should, there's, there's crowds cheering everywhere. I can hear them. So uh, lofty, lofty goals for us. If you didn't know Jake, if you know Jake, you know it's a piece of cake. It's just a cakewalk. Suzanne, anything to say before we get into it? Well, I couldn't agree with you more. This is a podcast of many, many firsts. Our first repeat guest and an author, no less. Yes. <laughs> I think we may have some if you, If you remember from a previous episode, Jake is a wonderful author of uh, an Azure certification book on data fundamentals. Highly, highly, highly would recommend taking the time to take a look. I myself have been using it. And uh, Jake, I'll be taking the DP uh, 900 very, nice. very soon. Nice. Um, wish me luck, um, but I know I have a great resource. Yeah, if you pass it, then let me know. If uh, if you didn't, then you know, just don't let me know that you that you return the book. But you know, just keep that keep that to yourself. Um, I will. But yeah, 
I will say though, that's the only reason I passed my DP nine hundred is Peter Jake's question. So thanks for that, man. Thank yeah. you, Jake. Thank you. Wonderful, wonderful book. Highly recommend it. And yes, this is the first time that we're doing a, a live demonstration. So really uh, delving into how do we bring value to to all of you? We talk not only about the business but the technical and the art of the possible. So I, I think this is going to be a, a wonderful demo and. Uh, I know that with Jake, I have no worries whatsoever. So <laughs> I know it's going to be great. Crossing my fingers. Crossing my fingers. <laughs> no pressure, Jake. <laughs> no pressure at all. So without further ado, all of you listening on Spotify, come to YouTube because we're about to go live. Awesome. Awesome. Jake, well, cool. my friend, the floor is yours. Thanks, John. Thanks, Suzanne. So yeah, so as John mentioned, one of the things that we get requests for a lot uh, at Microsoft from our sports customers, especially the teams, is you know how do we build out performance analytics architectures that are easy to use, highly scalable, can take in large amounts of data uh, at both batch and in real time, uh, and then you know how can we how can we use those architectures to do whatever we want to do with that type of data, uh, and so over the last several years. Uh, we've used modern modern data warehouse type best practices uh, to develop these type of solutions in Azure. Uh, and so uh, earlier this year, I published an article uh, that includes a commonly used architecture uh, for all the teams that I've worked with that includes Azure Data Factory for the orchestration and movement of data Azure Data Lake storage for storage of raw data files and then cleanse data files that are ultimately used for data science purposes uh, or for data engineering. Uh, and da Azure Databricks, uh, which is the key engine behind a lot of our uh, data engineering and data science usages. Uh, and Azure SQL Database, uh, which is you know, ultimately used as a data mart, uh, if you will, or a storage for report-ready data. Uh, so this is a smaller subset of data that's stored in Azure Data Lake storage that's ultimately uh, displayed by a Power BI report, or uh, if you're not using Power BI, something like Tableau, uh, or a custom application that you could host on uh, Azure App Service. Uh, Jake, let me ask you real quick, mate. Yeah. So looking at all these bits and pieces, someone coming fresh into Azure or someone coming fresh into the cloud per se, should they look at this and go, Oof, that's a lot I need to get my head around here. Or is this something that is easy if you know what to do? Yeah, so it is, you know, you can think of it as splitting things up into chunks, right? And taking a step back and thinking, what, uh, what are my organizational needs? Because for different organizations, maybe certain services are more useful than others. So if your software development team has a background in, let's say, C-sharp, uh, then maybe instead of uh, Azure Data Factory or Databricks for some of these usages, you could use an Azure function, uh, which down below the architecture here uh, and even below the data flow, I do have uh, components and alter uh, alternatives that you could use. Um, but it's really, it's thinking about, you know, how, how these different services can be used. So there is a lot to, uh, to kind of digest as far as what the services are used for. And you can definitely go deep down, uh, you know, all of these different products and get really, really technical with all of them. But to, you know, to get started at like a 100 or 200 level, uh, it's, it's really, you know, it's just taking a step back and, and thinking about, you know, what are we ultimately trying to do? 
uh, at, for me, it's it's a pretty pretty easy to to get started with architecture, and then because of its flexibility, you can go wild with it. You can do whatever you want to with it from a uh, from a data engineering, data science perspective, uh, regardless of whether it's uh, batch processing or uh, streaming or near real time. Um, you know, there's a lot of different things that you can do with it. And like I said, depending on the skill set of your team, you can also add or subtract certain components uh, just to make it easier for kind of the, the the getting started pieces of it. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. So so as I mentioned, the architecture itself was something that we published in early May. Uh, but as you can see on the screen, there are a lot of components here to it. Uh, and underneath all of those components are also uh, authentication and authorization pieces. So within Azure Data Factory, there's a concept of linked services. Uh, this is just how Data Factory manages the authentication credentials for storage and compute services like Data Lake and Azure Databricks. Uh, and then there's also authentication to Data Lake storage uh, and to Azure SQL that need to be considered. So, you know, what users can actually connect and read data uh, from these different services. Uh, in addition to that, if you're using Azure Key Vault for storing uh, secrets and uh, different uh, certs uh, for um, you know password management, uh, then the uh, users or different users need to be able to access that. So there's a lot of setup that goes into this architecture. Uh, and that's what I'm going to show today is how to easily deploy that uh, with one click. So if you go down, if you're on this architecture page and you go down to the very bottom, there is a deploy this scenario section. Uh, clicking on this link takes you to that article. So the blog posts uh, quickly goes over what are the services that are deployed, what are optional services. So data factory, data lake storage, and data bricks. Those are the services that are going to be used throughout all of these different, uh, you know, different solutions. Uh, and then Key Vault, SQL Database, Azure Event Hub are normally optional. So if you if you're going to be reporting against data that's stored in the in Data Lake, so you're using like a Delta format that has a good strong structure uh, applied to the data. You don't need a SQL database for you know more of a persistent storage indexing all of that. Um, definitely don't need to deploy SQL database if your organization already has a Key Vault instance that's deployed. Uh, kind of a, a separation of services, uh, you know, by who manages infrastructure and who manages data, um, then you definitely don't have to deploy the Key Vault. And then if you don't have a real-time uh, streaming use case, then there's no reason to, to deploy Azure Event Hub. So, you know, all of that is taken into consideration. And of course, in addition to services that are deployed, uh, the template will set up the necessary permissions for authentication and authorization. Uh, for the managed identities that are deployed uh, and the uh, and the user that's deploying it. So I'll go over how that works here in a second. So Jake, uh, if, if, yeah. if you're in varying degrees of, of your journey to cloud, right? What are the bare minimum requirements that you have to be able to click one of these buttons and deploy that? I mean, obviously you need an Azure um, account, you need an Azure subscription, um, and then come in, you don't need to have a thousand things done before you come in here and do it, right? Right. Once right. you set up correct. on Azure, you're one click in away, right? Yeah, yeah, that's it. So, so really, you just need a Azure subscription, um, and you know, with that subscription, 
you're obviously going to have an identity within Azure AD. So you'll need to provide that information as well as the object ID that is tied to the uh, to your user identity. So at the bottom here in the Rex section, I have a small PowerShell script that you can use to retrieve that object ID. Um, so, you know, this can be run from any PowerShell window on your desktop. It can be run from the uh, Azure uh, command line, um, you know, however you want to run it. So, you know, one thing to keep in mind, just replace this parameter in here, this AD username with your uh, user identity from Azure AD, uh, and then run this on, on PowerShell, and you'll retrieve the, the GUID that the object ID that's uh, tied to your user identity. And you'll want to save that off for later. I'll show here in a second where you'll want to input that whenever you go and deploy. Um, ultimately, what that's going to be used for is tying that user, so the user that's deploying the template, uh, to the appropriate uh, role-based access controls for Azure Blob Storage, uh, uh, for Azure SQL Database, and for uh, Azure SQL uh, or Azure Key Vault. Um, so all of that will kind of deploy and authorization will get set up the way that it should be set up. So yeah, so with that, you know, this article is fun and cool, but it is just text. Um, if you would like to browse the code, uh, so, you know, all of this is done through Bicep, uh, and it is, you know, this is more of a, a newer uh, infrastructure as code uh, scripting language. Uh, so this is, if you're familiar with ARM uh, or, in, or you're familiar with Terraform, it's almost a combination of the two, uh, but it is the, the sort of the modern way that uh, that Microsoft is uh, is deploying services or uh, opening up, you know, users to be able to deploy services in a CI/CD pipeline or, um, you know, in, in more of a uh, deployment as code sort of uh, sort of setup. So if you would like to browse the code, feel free to click uh, on this browse code button. Uh, it'll take you to the GitHub where all of that is is repoed. Uh, but if you want to just get in and deploy to Azure, uh, click on this deploy to Azure button. This will take you to your Azure subscription, uh, and it'll pop up a uh, prompt where you can start uh, deploying all of these services. So obviously, kind of the first thing to, to get squared away is what subscription you're going to be deploying to, what resource group. So if you have an existing resource group with all of these services or where you want to house all of these services, feel free to deploy it there. You know, something a lot of customers or a lot of sports teams ask me is, you know, how do we do resource group management? Uh, so the way that I look at resource groups is typically these are the services that are going to uh, be used by a certain application. Uh, so all of if you're going to be doing data engineering and all of your sports performance analytics data engineering uh, parts are going to make up a single solution, then all of that would go uh, within a single resource group. Now, best practices for production deployments have identity and networking components in a separate resource group. Uh, data engineering pieces in a separate resource group. Uh, but for this, you know, think of this as more of a, you're going to be doing uh, rapid deployment, proof of concept. So that's why the uh, Key Vault deployed to the same resource group as Databricks and, and Data Lake Storage in this case. But something to, you know, to kind of keep in mind whenever you're planning out production style deployments. So I don't have a resource group created yet. So I'm going to go in here and create a new one called Sports Analytics. Uh, I'm going to set my region to East US 2. 
Uh, so let me get to that. Uh, for this location, uh, you can definitely change it to another location. I'm going to keep mine as East US 2. Uh, what, what effectively what this prompt in here is saying is that for all of these services that are deployed, just use the resource group location. Um, now, if there are some requirements that I have, have you, you know, maybe changing that so that the resource group sits in one location and all the services sit in a different one, you can definitely change that to another uh, another region. But for now, I'm just going to leave this at the default. Uh, Jake, would the best practice be choose the region that is closest to where you're sitting? Would that be a yes. best practice? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Wherever wherever you're going to be sitting, you know, for for performance reasons, that's always going to be the the best practice. Uh, now there are obviously going to be uh, maybe different different requirements. So if there are certain services that aren't deployed in certain regions, um, then you know maybe you want to deploy it to a different region. But for the most part, these services, data lake storage, data factory, data bricks, these are all commonly used services that are available in just about every region that we have. Um, so yeah. So good question. Um, the next step, uh, I'm just going to add my Azure AD username. Uh, and again, this, this username is going to be applied. Uh, the proper role-based access controls for reading data at a data lake storage, uh, reading and managing uh, secrets in Azure Key Vault. Uh, and then also uh, it's going to be given um, uh, uh, Azure AD permissions for the SQL database. Uh, so the username, unfortunately, is not good enough. So I'll also have to add that uh, object ID, which I mentioned again, you can use PowerShell and the script that's in the prereqs uh, section of the, the article to grab. So once you grab that, just uh, paste. Now here comes the, the fun naming bits. Uh, and as anyone who's ever deployed a service to Azure knows, uh, every service has a different set of rules uh, for how you can name a, a particular service. Uh, and it can be uh, it can be annoying at times because not every service has the same set of rules. So what I did, uh, if you scroll over this little information button, I included all of the rules that are specific to each of these services. So as you can see, for data lake storage gen two, uh, storage account names must be between three and 24 characters in length. Only numbers and lowercase letters, so no dashes, no underscores, uh, and it must be unique within Azure. <clears throat> and so within the, the template itself, if you add a name that is not unique, it will tell you. It'll spit back a nice you know, red prompt saying, hey, this is already used, so you can go in and change it. So I'll go in here, copy and paste my name in here. Um, as any good cooking show, I've already kind of baked out some of these names. Uh, for a data factory, uh, data factory is pretty loose with how its naming uh, convention is set up. So I can use any sort of uh, sort of kind of nomenclature for that. So that's why I have the dashes in here. Databricks uh, has some rules. So definitely be sure to, to scroll over the information icon here. So I have my workspace name. Uh, Databricks NPIP. So no public IP. This is just a way to set up. Uh, additional security network isolation for a Databricks workspace. Uh, you can definitely set that as true or false. Um, you know, in the grand, kind of in the the grand scheme of the proof of concept, it doesn't matter regardless of of whether you're going to enable NPIP or not. Uh, it's a very easy setup, and so that's why by default I have it set to true. 
yeah, it's a, an easy way to to uh, to make sure that additional security is is applied. Uh, so I have that set for deploy event hub. As I mentioned earlier, maybe we don't need an event hub. Maybe we don't have a real time streaming use case. Uh, so I'm going to set that to false for now, um, just because for my particular use case, I don't need streaming data. For the event hub name, I can leave this blank. Uh, or, so I can delete the text that's in here, or I can just leave it as is. Nothing's going to happen because the the part of the script that would be run to, to deploy the event hub isn't going to run because I'm setting this to false. Uh, Key Vault, I am going to go ahead and run that. Uh, Key Vault also had some very specific rules, uh, so be sure to highlight over that and check it out. Um, the most important rule is that there cannot be another key vault with the same name. So, you know, definitely get creative with how you name your key vault uh, so that you don't run into, uh, you know, any sort of naming issues with it. Deploy SQL database. I'm going to go ahead and deploy a SQL database. Uh, I'm going to give that, uh, I'm going to give the logical server uh, this name here. Uh, and so, something to keep in mind with the Azure SQL database is that while there isn't a, a physical server uh, that you're you're working with. So you're, you're not going to be uh, able to work with like a SQL Server agent uh, or any of the server level features. There is still a logical server, which is more or less just an endpoint uh, that allows you to connect to your SQL databases. Uh, so it's more of a logical kind of housing around any SQL databases. Uh, for the database name itself, I'm going to give that a quick change to Sports Analytics DB. And then I'm going to get give a SQL user uh, uh, login and password. Something to keep in mind with Azure SQL Database, it does require uh, SQL authentication for the admin. <coughs> excuse me, for the admin. Um, now you can disable that. You know you don't need to uh, use SQL authentication for any other purposes. Um, by default, uh, the template is going to use both SQL authentication or enable both SQL authentication. And Azure AD authentication, so you can you can tie in your Azure AD identities for you know better security. Uh, but for this initial bit, I'm going to set my SQL admin uh, username and password. Something to keep in mind too, um, just you know, for because of certain uh, requirements for the template itself. Even if I don't, if I decide to not deploy a SQL database, you'll still need to enter in a username and password. So if you're not going to deploy the SQL database, just put in, you know, just some blank text, you know, some lorem ipsum, uh, yeah, nothing, nothing crazy, right? Um, and nothing will happen with it. Nothing will get deployed, but it's, it's a requirement for the template itself to get deployed. So let me change that back to true. So now that I have my template sort of written out, I can hit review and create. This will verify and validate any sort of potential issues um, and, and just let me know that I'm good to go for actually hitting create and deploy. So when I hit create, all of these services are going to get deployed along with the appropriate authentication bits. So I'll go ahead and hit create. Now, when you hit create, it will take you to this page right here where it'll show you, hey, this is, this is what's getting deployed. So this will take a minute or two to, to finish. Uh, so um, once that's done, you know, I will we'll go into the actual services just to look at, you know, what's done underneath the hood. And as you can see, uh, some of these services are already getting spun up. 
they're getting uh, provisioned right in front of me. Um, so yeah, so this is this is the process again. It's yeah, you know, and this like is I, as if you're doing it on on in in a real time basis, right? So if I'm coming in and I'm doing this as a real use case, um, this is exactly the behavior and amount of time that it's going to take. I don't have to now go and figure out something else to do for a couple of hours and let this do its thing and then come back to it, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's something that uh, I've talked with customers about uh, before is that because of how easy it is to deploy services to the cloud, it's much easier to, to try and test things out. You know, previously uh, or in years past, uh, a lot of these services, especially, you know, distributed compute services like Spark, uh, which, you know, Databricks is, it, it would take months to procure hardware to set up networking to get everything kind of ready to go. Now I'm deploying this in you know just a matter of you know a minute or two and I can immediately get started. And then if I don't you know don't want to keep anything around, I can de delete it all. Right. That's a great point. And I think another thing that is is also amazing to me, right, is that this is the same architecture and the same set of technologies that are running some of the most incredible analytic programs and analytic tools that we have across our sports properties, right? This is the very thing that they use. Granted, they may be scaling out, of course, right? But this is how everyone started. And this is how everyone's entry point into building a great basis for performing analytics within fan engagement, player analytics, business analysis, et cetera. This is it. This is the real deal, right? This is absolutely incredible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, the, you know, like I said at the beginning, the, this architecture is based off of tried and true best practices that we've leveraged throughout several different teams. Uh, and really the design decision behind it wasn't just that the services themselves were used, uh, but the flexibility of it. So, you know, I mentioned earlier, if you are working with a team that has a .NET C-sharp background and uh, you want to continue to lever leverage those skills, well, fine, throw in an Azure function. You can orchestrate that through uh, data factory, or you can orchestrate that through uh, uh, you know, file triggers in data lake storage. Uh, there's a lot that you can do with the architecture to make it your own. Uh, and within the blog post itself, I have several of those uh, alternatives that you can use uh, listed out uh, just for you know, other ideas if you're looking for new ideas. I think that's awesome. And Suzanne, we should have had a countdown on this one, right? Because how many times do you feel the question, well, how long is it going to take to deploy? Well, so the, isn't the uh, the rule this the rule of thumb 900 seconds, 900 seconds altogether for 900 seconds. <laughs> that's a 900 seconds. Yeah, as well. granular as that. But I think this is cool. And to your point, though, Jake, right? I mean, a lot of what we do in our day jobs, which which isn't this podcast, funnily enough, I know we, we seem extremely uh, professional and this would, <laughs> would be our gig, right? But is we help um, sports customers with those very decisions that you just spoke about, right? What is your current language of choice? What is your current preferred um, landings, et cetera? And the way that we see a lot of these successful deployments of a POC or an MVP around an analytical tool is to start with that business case first and work backwards from there. Because once we work backwards from there, we're getting to actually start deploying here. This is 900 seconds or less, right? This was amazing. We're already starting to get kicking. I'm going to let you go as well and stop blabbing. But starting at that point, 
doesn't then mean we've defined what a business case would be and it's going to take us to your point months to procure etc it doesn't even take us hours or minutes here we were 900 seconds away so mm -hmm. take back to you yeah yeah sure thing yeah no so you know as you could see it takes no time to deploy all of those services that are used for storage for data orchestration for ingestion for data engineering machine learning all of that sort of stuff is built in and deployed really really quickly uh, so if i click on this go to resource group i can actually see all of my services that are built in uh, and you know keep in mind this is these are the services themselves and and now i can go into databricks i can go into the workspace i can start developing new notebooks new python r uh you know r driven notebooks that use spark clusters to do maybe spatial analytics on on xyz coordinate data you know something like that i can go into data factory and, and actually start to to connect these pieces together for data movement and you know, something that I mentioned earlier uh, with the deployment of the template, uh, it's it's not just enough to deploy the services. Uh, something that's also important is authorization and authentication. So how does Data Factory know how to communicate with the services that were deployed? So storage being SQL and data lake storage, uh, and then also how to retrieve credentials from uh, Azure Key Vault. Uh, so as I mentioned, the within data factory there is a concept of linked services uh and within linked services all of that is is just connection information to storage and compute now as you can see i have linked services that got deployed uh, for key vault for sql and for uh, data lake storage the only one that's missing here is databricks now the reason that databricks isn't included is because a cluster needs to be uh, needs to be provisioned and stood up uh, with uh, or to have a link service deployed for uh, for uh, Databricks. Uh, and the only reason that I don't do that here is because Databricks clusters, uh, for as long as they run, they are burning the, the Azure meter. So there is a cost associated with it. So instead of, you know, building out a template that included uh, surprise costs within it, I just decided to stay away from it. Uh, you know, it's an easy uh, service to, to deploy the link service for Databricks, um, but you'll need to go in and, and provision a cluster uh, or set the link service so that it deploys a cluster uh, on the go as as the uh, you know as it's uh, as Databricks is is kicked off within or a notebook is is executed within Data Factory. So wanted to stay away from that, but it's definitely something that's easily added. Right. So, Jake, so, let me ask you real quick. This the the deployment that you've got here through the the script, the template that you've got. Are there any costs associated with this once you've hit that deploy button? Yep. Yep. Good question. Really good. Good question. So the only thing that will spin up a cost, or there are a couple of things, right? So it's storage and data lake storage, which is pennies on the dollar. It's super cheap storage, uh, especially compared to like a SQL database. Uh, or to a NoSQL database, it's just storing files in the cloud. Um, key Vault, there is a, a minimal uh, cost associated with storing uh, keys and secrets, um, but there's nothing stored in in, uh, in Key Vault at the moment, so it's not costing you anything. The only thing that's going to incur some cost is the SQL database itself. Now, for that reason, I've set it up to be uh, one of the lower tiers. Uh, so let me go to compute storage. So it is just a general purpose 
uh, V8. So it does start off at $1,400, um, but you can use things like uh, like reserved instances to cut back on the cost, or you can even go in here and just scale it down, right? So this is the one area where there is a, uh, there is a cost associated to keep in mind. Uh, so definitely, you know, if you would, if you would like to scale it down, just go to the SQL database within the portal, go to compute and storage, and then just scale it down. So you can scale it back to one of the DTU based models, uh, or keep it at general purpose and scale down on the V cores. But that's the one area to, to kind of keep in mind whenever uh, you do a deployment of, uh, of this template. Yep. And so the last thing, you know, or the last couple of things to keep in mind is that, as I mentioned, your uh, your user identity uh, within Azure AD that's used to deploy this service and then the managed identities for uh, data factory, they, they need to have the appropriate uh, roles uh, tied to them so that, you know, mm -hmm. so that your user and so data factory can read and write data to uh, data lake storage and read uh, secrets uh, from Key Vault. So if I go into the Key Vault and I go to access control uh, and I go to role assignments, I can see if I scroll down to Key Vault's secret user, I can see my username and I can see the managed identity for data factory. And if I use the same sort of uh, sort of steps, uh, within the data lake account, if I go to Azure Control, go to Role Assignments, I can scroll down to the bottom. I can see Storage Blob Data Contributor uh, has been assigned to my Data Factory Managed Identity into my User Identity. Uh, something to keep in mind: Storage Blob Data Contributor that allows these identities to read and write data to uh, to the service, very different than contributor. Uh, storage blob data contributor is what's needed for reading data and for writing data uh, to uh, to the data link account. Uh, now, of course, you can definitely go in and add additional users, additional user groups, additional managed identities. Um, but to to kind of get started with the setup, this is all you needed to get going. So with that, uh, let's say that you've done some testing and you want to delete uh, the services, you can go up here to delete resource group and then type in the resource group name and delete. And then you've deleted all of the services. So within you know maybe 10, 15 minutes, uh, we've gone through, deployed all of these services, uh, gone through a quick walkthrough of what each service includes in the deployment. And then we've also deleted it. So we're we're done with our, our testing with it. So really easy to live. Yeah, oh yeah, all live. All live. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if I'm sweating a little bit, it's because of the yeah, you know, all the pressure. No, I'm just kidding. No pressure. We did it live. There was there was no glitches whatsoever. Yep. The demo gods were smiling yes. upon you, Jake. This was fantastic. I mean, we built up an architecture and then we just destroyed it. <laughs> yep. It's fantastic. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, I mean, it's incredible to see just how easy it is to deploy these services. Um, and it's really a testament to our product teams who work on you know, templates or template languages like Bicep. It's very easy to stand up all of these different services and, and get going really quickly with, uh, with different solutions. And then once you're, once you're done, you're done. 
So Jake, this is fantastic. And yeah, you see, we, we, we didn't put any pressure and it went beautifully as we as we expected it to. Um, this is fantastic. And so just thinking, uh, taking a step back and, and I guess looking at the architecture, a lot of this subscribes to the uh, well, well-architected framework that we talk a lot about here within Azure. Um, for those that might not be familiar, could you high-level walk us through what what is well-architected or WAF? Yeah, so it's really it's the idea of deploying services in a way that are easy to manage um, and that logically makes sense. So, you know, something that I mentioned earlier, when you're thinking of production-ready deployments and solutions. You know, where are certain identity and networking components going to live? Where are my data engineering components? Where my, you know, maybe I have uh, a, uh, maybe I'm deploying an application to, to Azure. Where are those components going to live? So it's really, it's the design behind how my Azure deployments or Azure implementation uh, how that design is going to work. So it's, it's more or less, it's organization, right? It's, it's the idea that uh, everything is is in a in a logical uh, sort of setup uh, without any sort of you know any confusion as to what services are getting used, where are they getting used, who manages what services, uh, that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's wonderful that you can just deploy things on Azure at the the click of a button, and there's I think over 600 services. Um, but you want there to be a rhyme and a reason to to what you're doing. The last thing you want to do is open up your Azure environment and like, okay, I see this virtual machine that's costing me ten thousand dollars a month. I have no idea what it actually does. <laughs> I don't know why it's here. I don't know why I'm using it. I don't even know if it's appropriate for what I'm using it for. So really applying a, a framework, a, a set of guidelines so that when you are building on Azure, um, it is logical, it's making sense. You're not spending ungodly amounts of money and, and so forth. And so all of that's really important. Um, so thinking about what, what we've just deployed here, um, what are, I guess, some of the use cases that you that you can see our our client base potentially using this architecture? Yeah, yeah, and just really quick, I just want to show everyone. Uh, so I, I'm sure everyone saw the little icon at the top that the resources were de uh, deleted. Um, the web page itself is static, but if I hit refresh in here, all those resources are gone. So no uh, no issues there. Um, so yeah, charges so, as well, right? So everything that was burning any sort of of, ch of charge or incurring charge has shut down immediately once that resource group was deleted. Yep, exactly, exactly. So all of that is gone. You don't have to worry about your manager coming to you one day with a with a big bill saying, "Hey, what is this?" So easy, easy way to skirt by that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so you know. Back to your question, Suzanne, about what solutions can be deployed. So uh, a lot of the solutions that we've worked on with this architecture have been around data engineering and data science. Um, you know, whether it's and it's a lot of sports performance data. So think of traditional box scores. How do we store off years and years and years, seasons upon seasons of data uh, for uh, different uh, analysis uh, and then to also be used with newer sets of data like spatial tracking data xyz coordinates of what you know what are players doing during the course of a game on the field on the court on the pitch you know however you want to want to call that um 
and then in addition to that sort of data, also biomechanical data. So if you think of like a pitcher, how is their arm moving uh, during a game or during certain pitches? Uh, all of that data can be stored off in data lake storage. Uh, it can all be processed with uh, data breaks with Spark um, and you know analyzed through you know, using different machine learning models uh, and, and then ultimately reported it against uh, for actual analysis. So if you're thinking about personnel decisions through free agency, through trades, uh, through the draft, uh, or even different uh, different play styles. So how well do certain sets within a game uh, work out? So how well do certain players work with other players based off of their skill sets? Uh, all of that can be achieved uh, with this architecture. So I think that's amazing, right? I mean, one of the things that is super cool is that we get to have a million conversations, right? Um, and this this architecture is a manifestation of all of those in terms of it's able to do each and every one of these use cases, right? But listening to these these true tried and tested use cases from our clients, right? It, it, there's always a magic word in there, and right? that, that word is data, right? So is it true? <laughs> Let me lead the witness, Your Honor. Is it true that the more data you have, the better your analytic solution is going to be? Oh, well, I'll give you the the consulting answer. It depends. Right? <laughs> so more data is always fun, right? More data, is, it gives you more flexibility, more freedom to make wild assumptions and, and come up with really cool and interesting things. But more data can also create stagnation it can bog you down it, it can be very intimidating look at looking at very messy unstructured or semi-structured data um and that's where services like spark really cut you know come into play and and bring a lot of value is all right well this is you know you take a look at like at a at a giant uh piece of json that's nested multiple times and just yeah you know, just kind of a behemoth and you're like well that's that's intimidating but parsing that out, pulling out pieces of data, um, and using you know distributed computing platforms like Spark to, to process all of that data, flatten it out in a way that's easy to look at, can provide a lot of value. Or you know, it can show you, hey, this data actually has no value whatsoever. Let's not continue doing anything or, or you know uh, creating hypothesis off of this data. It's just useless. Um, it yeah, you know, there's definitely a lot there to it. Uh, it's, you know, more on the side of, yes, provides a lot of value, but it's definitely something to keep in mind. Like, all right, well, this is a lot. I'm not going to be able to do anything with this. Jake, I, I appreciate your candor in the, it depends <laughs> answer, because I mean, I, I know people hate it, but it, it literally is true. And as you were talking about that, I, I, I thought of two things specifically, the fact that we have such a proliferation of data that you can always get to a point of uh, analysis paralysis when there's just there's just so much where do you where do you even unravel that and begin and then maybe on the other side of that is talking about is all data really meaningful to us we can have these data points for sure mm -hmm. but do they, can we derive any meaning from them, any insight or anything valuable? And so um, having, sometimes having more data to your point, you know, it, it really does depend. Yep. <laughs> yep. 
One of the things that, that um, and you're spot on there, right? One of the things that we see from experience is that analysis paralysis is twofold. Number one, it just, it, number one, the sheer amount of data that's available is cumbersome because do I use this set, that set? Do I use both sets? Do I use 900 of them? I don't really know what to do. So people kind of get intimidated at that point. That's the, that's how do I start, right? There's too much out there. If I don't start, then I don't, I don't have to worry about it. Then the other one is, okay, cool. I did something and I got a result that I liked. Let me do something more. That was a result I liked even more. Let's do something more. There's that always that next step. Let's do something more versus delivering a result and then making a decision upon that, right? At what point, Jake, do you see in, in the experience of working with our, with our teams, with our, with our customers here, where you're good enough for phase one or stage one? Yeah. Um, so, sorry, could you repeat the question? Easy question. This is an easy, really question yeah. for you. Easy question is that how much analysis is good to get started? So, I think. Yeah, I hate to keep going back to it depends, right? But it, it really does. It, yeah, I think a lot of teams have done a great job over the years of creating, um, you know, creating like sabermetrics. Uh, and, and so there is a baseline for, you know, what is a good pitcher or what is a an efficient shot uh, in a basketball game? Um, and so there, there, the start is there. The baseline is there. It's how do I take the newest sets of data because technology as it's forever just getting more and more um you know more improved and yeah more just kind of enhanced by by what it does um there's there's so many new data points that are coming in and, and there is a you know what do we do with this how do we how can we leverage uh spatial data uh to really get into uh get into different uh different things so there there's a lot there to to that Simple question. I understand. So it's fine. Um, one of the things that that we've noticed in in terms of how effective is my analytics program at XYZ Team League, whatever it is, it really is starting with that business problem first, right? To your point, there is a baseline on the player's performance. There's a baseline on a ticket sales average price. There's a, a lot of baselines that we can do. So Getting started with that business use case is what we've seen typically leads to success. Jake, I love that the demo guy smiled favorably yep. upon you, my friend. You uh, you did a great job over here. I think this was a, a very good session to understand just how simple it is. I mean, we've been talking for less than an hour. We've spoken about mostly some gobbledygook from me, but we've spoken about some real use cases for analytics and sports today. We built an analytics platform on, on Azure in which you can go and actually start creating some real value out of, and then we struck it down, right? So we, we can see how just how easy it doesn't live on forever, right? So Jake, thank you as always. Um, I have a feeling you're gonna be our first three-peat guest as well. So uh, crossing my fingers for that, but thank you. This was amazing. Thank you, Jake. We really appreciate it. And uh, with that, we're going to wrap up our episode, but uh, we hope you enjoy. We hope you enjoyed our first technical demonstration. Uh, please let us know how you feel about this episode and many others. Uh, until next time, take care and we'll see you soon.